You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, I, I have something that I have to get off my chest. A confession, if you will. Uh-oh. Yeah. Confessions mean you must have done something wrong. I think I did. I uh, recorded something without you. It better not be about social studies. You know how I like to be there for social uh, studies conversations. It, yeah, it was, it was exactly about social studies. Uh, okay, what was it? Let's let's hear. Spill the beans. So with SS Chat, our social studies network that we're a part of, we had a book club for uh, the month of August where we talked where we talked about uh, Bruce Lesh's book, Why Won't You Tell Us the Answer? Historical Thinking in Grades Seven to Twelve. Great, right? Yeah, yeah. Actually, we've I've seen that book and it looks fascinating. And I would have loved to participate in the book club, but I'm going to definitely read that book. I just wasn't able to make it work yet. It is absolutely fascinating. And I got the chat with Bruce Lesh. What? Yes. <laughs> and it was kind of awesome. So what does the book focus on? What's the, what is it, the takeaway for social studies and history teachers? Oh, my God. It's all about creating historical investigations for students to get into. It is well worth the read. Uh, he talks, it's like written like a real, he talks about mistakes that he made. He talks about how he came up with things. He talks about the shift that he had in his teaching. It's really cool. It's like a practitioner's guidebook and it is just so good. That sounds really awesome. And, you know, it reminds me of the inquiry model a little bit too, yes. that in a sense, because inquiries are supposed to be these investigations yes. into... <clears throat> history and um or into social in geography into economics and yeah and so the what you're going to be hearing is a little bit of his background and he's going to be fielding some questions that our participants had and so do you know what let's just listen to it and we'll talk about it when we get back yeah i get to just sit back and listen to this one i'm gonna relax back in my uh in my chair i wish i was on a beach with a you know a, a margarita just listening to the podcast no there work for me today without further ado Bruce Lesh, how are you doing? Doing well. How are you? I am pretty good. Um, very good, actually. It's, you know, this summer, it's very exciting. Uh, and we, of course, with SS Chat, have been reading your book. Why won't you just tell us the answer? Teaching historical thinking in grades 7 through 12. So it's been a lot of fun. Do you mind telling us a little bit about who you are? Who is Bruce Lesh? <laughs> so... I taught for 22 years in uh, at the high school level in Baltimore County Public Schools. Baltimore County is a it's a massive school system. It's about 110, 112,000 students. Runs from the Pennsylvania border all the way around Baltimore City. It runs from urban to suburban to rural. It's it's a giant district, and I yeah. taught in three different high schools within that district over the course of 22 years. So I think at my heart, um, I'm a teacher. And then uh, after 22 years, uh, 
about four years ago, I stepped out of the classroom to do some educational policy work around social studies. So you wrote, why won't you tell us the answer? Do you mind telling us a little bit about your inspiration for writing this book, how it came? Obviously, this came of, you know, lots of years of work. You wrote a book. Why? <laughs> it's a really good question. So as a classroom teacher, you're always holding on to examples of student work so that you can use them ex as exemplars with uh, the students that you have in subsequent years. And so, I, you know, I started to accumulate uh, a larger and larger pile of student work. And then um, the Teaching American History grant program came and we were flush with money <laughs> everywhere for, for history education. And I had the unique opportunity to go out and work with a number of districts outside of my state. And what I started to see was I could use the student work to help to communicate to other people um, how to potentially make this transition in terms of history instruction. And so I started to play with the idea. And at first I just thought, you know, it was the lesson plans that I wanted to make available that other people could, could use them. And then, um, I've known Jim Percoco for a number of years and Jim and I were on a teaching American history grant program in New Hampshire and had dinner with his editor, um, uh, Jim's big book was uh, A Passion for the Past. And we were just kicking ideas around, and the editor said, you know, lesson plans you can get off the Internet, but no one really understands what to do with them. And so we just started to talk about how we might use student work and the lessons to form the spine of a book. And it sort of went from there. It was a complete shot in the dark, <laughs> um, having never – written anything longer than, you know, some articles for the OAH magazine of history. I didn't know what it would look like. I didn't know how it would uh, come to fruition. And it actually came together fairly quickly um, because all I was doing was taking the work that I'd already done and given some narrative structure to it. And then, uh, you know, interviewing students and getting their voice in and being able to bring their work in. So I didn't have to invent things from whole cloth. It was just sort of a, a narrative of what I was doing on a not on a day to day basis. Yeah. One of the things that I appreciate is that you seem to be honest with things that didn't go well in how you worked through it. And I feel like that's something that sometimes is like when you just get a lesson plan. You just get a lesson plan. But when you see what went into it, you learn, you understand a lot more about that. Yeah. And I think teaching is going to make you very quickly feel humble <laughs> because you can design anything that you want on paper. And then when you release it with uh, 14, 15, 16, 17 year olds, it can become something else completely that you didn't envision. And so I think failure is a natural part of this profession. Unfortunately, Sometimes I think we try to smooth away from it. So we try to teacher-proof curriculum. We train our principals to be risk-adverse. And I think we we ignore the fact that sometimes you are going to fail and you're going to fall on your face. Yeah. And that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> um, as long as you realize that you need to pick up the pieces and help kids to learn, despite the fact that you know your best efforts fell apart. And so I've, I've had principals, particularly early in my career, who were not risk averse. 
and a noisy classroom wasn't the sign of disorder or kids not learning that there's such thing as productive noise Um, and there's such thing as thinking on your feet that sometimes you write a lesson plan and you thought you were going to go right and the kids take you left and you've got (laughs) to you've got to go with them so yeah I think identifying the failure I think is important in, in any teacher's growth yeah so we have a number of questions from participants that I would like to, to get through some of them. Um, so this is a question from, from Kelly. What's one easy instructional strategy that I can use during my first weeks of school to engage and hook my students? So I'm assuming that she's asking really about engaging and hooking kids into historical thinking. I imagine and, so, yeah. Yeah, and so there's a, there's a couple things that you could do. One um, is use something that is relevant to the kids, personal to their lives, so that when they're wrestling with an issue and learning about sourcing documents and, and corroborating across documents, um, it's it's most proximate to their lives. Because if you start 3,000 years ago with people that they've never heard of and, and they talk in a way that they don't understand, it immediately distances them from it. So um, starting with a, a problem or an issue that may be relevant in the news or relevant in their lives and using that as the platform to explain that we wrestle with questions, here's how we gain information. I've seen some teachers do it, you know, where they'll bring in six or eight historic documents that are about themselves, but they don't tell the kids that it's about themselves, about mm-hmm. the teacher, and then ask the kids to, you know, go through the evidence and describe who this person is, et cetera, et cetera. And then they can use that to learn about the teacher. Um, I've seen uh, people do, you know, like the murder mystery, um, Sam Weinberg's materials does the, the, the lunch food, fight. Yeah. the lunch fight at school, anything like that, I think definitely gets them hooked in. Another one would be to have kids looking at an event and giving them two separate sources, but not telling them that they have two separate sources. Ooh, yeah. And then when they start to construct the narrative and, you know, one kid says this happens and the other said, what are you talking about? It's not in my source. It, it opens up the fact that we're not dealing with uh, one source that has all the information that we have right. to corroborate across sources. So little things like that can be, can be effective. I always, <laughs> I have this breakup letter that my uh, seventh grade girlfriend sent me. And we use that to learn about uh, sourcing documents and contextualizing documents. I don't tell them that it's a breakup letter to me until <laughs> we get into it a little bit. So you're, you're over it by this point, I imagine. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> so anything like that, I think, are, are good ways to get kids hooked in and to get them practicing the kind of skills that they're going to utilize over the course of the year. Nice. Uh, this is a question from Mike. When you create an investigation, how do you pick your focus? So part of it is whatever your curriculum requires you to cover. So you know that you've got some sort of framework or guide that's been provided you by the state or by the district, and you know how they've decided to periodize things, the things that they're going to emphasize. So you're looking through that um, as a guide. And then for me, I'm looking for people, events, where there is controversy, where there is debate, where the sort of humanity within that is really rich and that kids can tap into. So, you know, the difference between Jeffersonian and Jacksonian democracy might not be a place that I gravitate to. (laughs) Yeah. 
it's important for kids to understand, but I don't know if it's necessarily as rich for an investigation. I always joke that I look for sort of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, <laughs> but I, I'm looking for the, the humanity, uh, deception, uh, victory, um, lying, conflict, those kind of things I, I think I tend to gravitate to, and I think that they can be rich places for for kids. And then the other one is sometimes you just bump into sources um, where like I came into the one that's in the book about the Panama Canal, not really interested in teaching much about the Panama Canal. You know, we wanted it, we dug it, we died from malaria and we held on to it for a while. <laughs> it's kind of the narrative that we tend to hit in the classroom. And I bumped into a book that was published in the 1960s um, when sort of the the new social studies movement was going on and bumped into some documents there and I found it really rich and then just sort of went in that direction. So some of it is – some of it's more serendipitous than it is well-planned. Yeah. So it seems like research definitely goes into this. It does. It does. And I think that's one of the things I've found is that – Teachers who are unfortunately put in a position where their principal is changing their prep every year mm -hmm. or the teacher is giving them four preps, um, it becomes difficult because I think that this a particular approach benefits from teaching something every year Yeah, and so that you're becoming more vested in it. Right. Uh, my undergraduate and graduate degrees were in history, so – in some ways, I had a foot forward than somebody who had a broad field social studies major and hasn't taught U.S. history before and hasn't had much background. It would take them a few years to get settled in. Right. I know for me, I taught – originally, my background was in U.S. US history, and then I started teaching world history. And at first, I was not really – didn't really know exactly what I was doing. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, I had the book, and then I – you know, but then as you know, kind of move forward, you develop, and you get interested, and right. it does take years. Yeah, the first, my first year, uh, they said, here, teach um, psychology. And I kind of went, really? <laughs> <laughs> I taught it. <laughs> and then I ran away from it. <laughs> so our next question comes from Andrew, and this is about sources. What is your favorite source that you've uncovered? My favorite source. So I was I was messing around with incorporating local history into my U.S. history class because I thought local things could serve as case studies for broader trends. And um, my period of interest is sort of post-Civil War to 1920. Um, so I've always had an interest in labor and strikes and those kind of things. So I decided to look at the rail strike of 1877. Um, and the B&O Railroad Museum is, of course, right here in Baltimore. Yeah. And they have a they have an archive. I wouldn't say it's huge. Um, but particular to the rail strike of 1877, they have a pretty rich collection of resources. So I popped down there. Uh, this was pre-internet, which kind of dates me, which is amazing. But um, I went down there and kind of looked through their archives. And I found this letter from the Gatling Gun Company. And it was pure advertisement, but it was a letter written to, in this case, the president of the B&O Railroad. But I've subsequently discovered that they wrote letters to the presidents of all the railroads oh, wow. advertising their Gatling gun as a wonderful tool, tool that can mow down strikers by the hundreds. Oh, my God. <laughs> 
and it's just this it's it's on this gorgeous um 19th century stationery from B&O and it's signed by the president it's an amazing source and then i ended up incorporating it into a um uh, a history lab that looks at the the rail strike of 1877 so that was a really that was a fun source that sounds awesome uh, I always think of whenever I hear B&O Railroad, my mind immediately goes to Monopoly. Um, yes. Is, yeah. So the next question comes from Nicholas. Uh, As a professor who trains future social studies teachers, I've used your text and found it helpful in breaking student mindset about the need to be constantly teacher-centered. What additional suggestions or convincing arguments do you have for my students as the efficacy of this approach? Yeah, that's difficult. So... Yeah. We go through teacher training and then we go out to the schoolhouse and the breakdown is how frequently are our pre-service teachers seeing someone actually doing in the classroom. And what I found is, is that more than likely they go out into the schoolhouse and they get the grizzled veteran who's, you know, willing to take on a student teacher and they're not seeing the, the student centered approach. They're seeing yeah. the teacher centered approach. And and I hear this from folks that, that I hire when I was in that position of hiring teachers. Um, yeah, I, I learned about it. They talked about it, but my cooperating teacher wouldn't allow it or didn't know anything about it. So I'm not really sure how to actually do it. <laughs> and I think that's one of the problems is that we have great islands of innovation in social studies classrooms. We have people who have em embraced this approach and they've applied the research and um, have really put it into practice, but the larger C of practitioners are still doing what we've always done, which is telling kids everything they need to know, having them take notes, reinforcing it with a textbook. And so, and I know this is difficult. So if you're a methods professor, if you have the ability to go out and handpick the folks that are going to be uh, the cooperating teachers when folks are student teaching, I think you increase then the chance that they're going to see it in practice, mm -hmm. that it'll cement what they're hearing from their methods professors, and then they may be more inclined to mimic it when they get into their own classroom. Um, but if you can't make some value judgments about who you're going to be putting your folks with, and it's just whoever wants them, it's a crapshoot. Um, when I came out, my high school cooperating teacher... I showed up on a Monday and his planning period was second period. And he said, there's a textbook. I'm going to go break down some game film. Let me know if you need anything. Oh, wow. And I, I didn't see him for six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't have anybody to model anything for me. Um, yeah, it's, it's really sometimes luck of the draw. With, At least you uh, got to fail on your own though. Oh, and I failed. <laughs> <laughs> so our next question comes from uh, Christine Hitchcock. Uh, she, has, she, has a, she has a few. Uh, how do we encourage schools of education to improve teacher prep, specifically in social studies, to align more of a closer to a vision that you lay out? So uh, I would go back to the, the point that I made a moment ago about that. It really does depend on who is working with your pre-service teachers when they're getting out into the buildings yeah. and what they're seeing. Um, and I know this is really a difficulty right now we have in, this, in our state. Um, our elementary social our elementary teachers will take social studies methods and then there's no one to go see teach social studies in the elementary school because oh, no. they're not teaching it. Taking it away because they have to deal with all the other standardized tests yeah so it's become very hard um, to get 
those practicing teachers in a position where they can do it. Um, so I think there's that piece. I think there's also, I was, I did both Broadfield social studies and I was a history major. So I got, I guess, dual certified in a way. Um, the folks that are coming out that are certified in social studies, Broadfield, are apparently more hireable. But I think they struggle when they are starting to teach because more than likely they're going to teach U.S. history, world history, or world cultures. Mm -hmm. And they're having to spend a lot of time building up their knowledge base and that, you know, that old, not really canard, but that old idea of being five pages ahead of the, the kids, yeah. I think plays out a lot. So part of it is, I think, I think teachers need content background that's gives them more depth as to what they're probably going to teach. Mm -hmm. And I know that that becomes difficult when you've got rural districts and you are the social studies teacher six through 12 and you're teaching every <laughs> subject, it's problematic. But I, I do think there needs to be a little bit of increase in, in just the basic U.S. history and world history knowledge uh, that most folks are going to fall into. So the other thing is we know that teachers have that sort of apprenticeship of observation. So if they've been taught as a student in high school through lecture and everything else, and then their history classes on the college campus are taught by lecture, yeah. and they show up in a methods class, it's really difficult to dissuade them that that's not necessarily the best way. And so if there's any way on campuses to link, to get the history departments and the geography departments who are teaching some of those basic introductory content courses to teachers to think about the way that they're approaching their discipline to model other things, yeah. I think it reinforces. Now, I say that, and I had, I spent 20 years trying to do that at a particular university in Maryland, and I had members of the history department who bought into it and worked hard, and they worked with the method professors, and I had others who would not touch it with a 20-foot pole. <laughs> and so I, I understand those sort of institutional barriers um, between the ed departments and, and the content departments, but if anything that can be done to try to break, break down those barriers, I think is a benefit. The next question, any plans for doing a similar book or collaborating with someone with world history examples? So I've been writing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I have a couple of chapters where I wrestle with with world history. And my problem is well, it's twofold. One, since I I left the classroom 4 years ago, I feel like kind of a fraud writing about teaching because I'm not teaching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um everybody tells me that I need to get over it if you've done it for 22 years, you've either figure out how to fake it really well or you actually <laughs> you do know what you're doing. Um, and so the other piece that's holding me back is I don't have the ability to pull 10 kids after a lesson and sit down and talk with them and get the feedback. So yeah. I'm trying to figure out a way to, to, to organize this book without having my kids at the sort of center of what I'm doing. And I'm, what I'm leaning towards is focusing it on the professional development aspect of historical thinking and how teachers have interacted with the materials and districts have interacted with materials when I've worked with them. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, that tends to be rich, but I do have a couple chapters that I've written about world history. Um, 
Chris will be very excited because she's actually <laughs> talked about this quite a bit recently. Yeah, well, there's, I mean, Sam and his group have uh, provided, you know, the lesson materials for world history, but world history has certainly gotten the short shrift in professional development and money for, for a generation. Yeah. So the, her next question has to do with uh, legislature. Any ideas on how to also communicate this to legislators at the state and federal level who are so bent on school accountability based on high stakes testing that is most likely recall rather than skill based? Yeah, I think we've made a great deal of progress. Um, and this is a broad brush, but I think we've made progress in or on the state level. I think particularly teachers, teachers unions and even the unions that represent principals have pushed back hard on assessment. Yeah. They're too long. They're too many. They're, the consequences are too high. And I think state legislators have heard that. The problem is the assessment culture in terms of accountability is it's driven by the feds. Mm -hmm. And when they rewrote and reissued the elementary and secondary education act, you know, the, uh, every student succeeds act is what it was nicknamed. It maintained the assessment requirements for ELA math and science. It left us out. <laughs> um, so we're not at the table and it's the feds that are driving that conversation. So, there, it's twofold. You have to get the feds to back off. But the flip side is we know that having federal assessments has sh really shown a light on the disparity of education based on race and socioeconomics. Yeah. And without that assessment to shine that light, I'm afraid we'll just go back to ignoring it. Now, I don't know that we've done anything really significant to to change it and to close the gap but having some assessments does hold our feet to the fire to make sure that we're trying to give every kid um, the best education possible so i don't know that we'll ever get in a position we will where we will throw away assessment mm -hmm. uh, but i do think we could be a little bit more surgical about it do you need to assess ela and math every year um could it just be done at the big grade band breaks, you know, fifth grade, eighth grade, once in high school, something like that? And are there other assessments that could replace the, uh, the assessments that states use? In terms of how we assess in social studies, that's one of the things I've learned in my new job. Um, we know how to assess in ways that are rigorous and that would put kids in a position of showing thinking too expensive <laughs> right um i imagine grading it would take a long time correct and even with the um increased efficacy of ai scoring um it's still not perfect and it's still it's still somewhat cost intensive it's certainly not as cost intensive as having you know two human readers per student response right. um but it's really a function of cost and so legislators want to test, but then they don't want to spend a lot of money doing it. And so you end up giving really crappy multiple choice questions. Right. Um, but I think, I think we're still in the midst of a national dialogue about assessment. Um, and it's peeled back a little bit, but I think we have another iteration of that conversation to go through. All right. So the next question is from Tish. This is a two part 
How do you help administrators understand and support the history inquiry process with so much focusing on standardized testing? And is there data that uh, I can show or she can show that indicates getting students to master the process does improve their economic abilities across the board? So there's a couple things that you can do. In terms of data, um, National History Day did a national um, survey. It's probably it's probably close to a decade old, but um, it showed clearly the benefits to students who were participating in National History Day in terms of um, the quality of their writing, in terms of their knowledge on standardized tests, in terms of um, I can't remember what the other one. It was, I mean, it just blew me away the data that they had. And yeah. if I under, if I understand correctly, they're in the process of gearing up for another study to show that connection. So even if you don't do History Day, the the skills that are embodied in that program um, are the same kind of skills that you're using when you're using historical thinking in the classroom. So there's rich data there. Um, the other one would be the dissertation that was done by Abby Reisman. Abby went into um, San Francisco public schools and trained a bunch of teachers to teach in this particular way. And then she gets down into the data of student performance and it yeah. shows the impact. And one of the biggest impacts it had was on students reading comprehension levels, which was amazing because she was working with 11th graders <laughs> and – Reading comprehension doesn't really jump that much <laughs> after you get past seventh or eighth grade. The other piece I always argue is get them in your room and and let them see what it looks like when it's going well because mm -hmm. um, it tends to sell itself. Um, so, yeah, a little bit of um, gratuitous advertising <laughs> on behalf of the teacher. But but there is data out there um, that that does support this particular approach and having kids do well. The other thing is if you're in a state where you have, and there's only, I think eight left, but if you're in a state that actually tests social studies on a state level, a required assessment, um, the year before you start doing this, grab your data. And then when you start to implement it the second year, compare the data mm -hmm. and you can start to look at, is there a negative effect? Is it neutral? Are my kids doing better on the assessment? And what I found was is that my kids started doing better on the assessment because they were engaged during the year and it helped with retention and it helped with their writing and the kind of things that they had to do on the assessment. And I think a, what a lot of teachers think is if I'm not telling them everything that they need to know, then they're not going to do well on the exam because I haven't told them everything that they need to know. Mm -hmm. And I think what they're forgetting is, is that the nine months where you're telling them everything they need to know, they don't care. <laughs> They're checked out. Um, so having them engaged pays benefits in the long run. Yeah. So that would be my biggest. Okay. Thank you. Dan has a question. How is your approach in teaching adapted or shifted since you wrote your book? So a couple of things. One, I even more gravitated I gravitated to the fact that every lesson I had was focused on a central question that kids were trying to figure out, that there was something to figure out every day. So there weren't lessons where it was just, here's a bunch of background information or color in this map. I jettisoned all that stuff. Yeah. Um, 
And I, I really organized my, my instruction around key investigative questions. And um, I found that really, really effective because it then forced me to say, do you really need to have them study the 1928 presidential election? Al Smith is really interesting. The impact of prohibition is really interesting. But given everything that you're looking at and what you have to cover and what it takes to do these historical labs, it really forced me to critically say what is most important. And I think the problem that most history teachers have is that they won't triage their content. They want to cover everything and they literally do they cover everything and then you flip the page and they cover more um it really did force me to make some critical decisions and to look for exemplar case studies that could uh, speak broadly about a time period and those kinds of things and i think that was really helpful because i'll go in and i'll i've worked with teachers who'll say well they, they can't do this. They can't think about anything unless they know something. And they just keep telling kids everything they have to know. Yeah. And then they run out of time to have them think about anything. Uh, so I think that was one of the big things that, that really cemented itself. I think the other one, and this I've been writing about this too, is the fact that how I assessed kids needed to change. And so... I talk about in what I'm writing, I always did an end of the year survey, anonymous survey with my kids to get feedback on the course, what was going well, what they didn't like. And I kept getting statements like, um, your tests are way easier than class. And I arrogantly just patted myself on the back. You know, I took the old football coach, oh, the, the game is easier than practice, so they're really, really ready. And what I began to realize is that what they were telling me was is that cognitively in class, I was asking a lot of them and when they got to the tests i wasn't asking them to do anything <laughs> that there was a there was a disconnect between how i was teaching and how i was assessing and so i really had to look at that and and i realized quickly that they were right that i the cognitive load in class was significantly higher than the cognitive load on the test so i had to readjust the way that i assessed um i completely reinvented my unit tests and the way that they were structured um, and I did some things within those unit tests to give, uh, value to the historical investigations that they were doing, uh -huh. um, and the process. And so I, I made a big shift there. And at the same time, our district was asking us to shift to formative assessment, um, sort of non-graded, uh, information generating kinds of assessment. Yeah. And so I was able to adopt that into some of it as well. So you just talked about how your your tests try to incorporate the historical things. How would you do that? So the first thing I had to do was realize that, um, you know, we use multiple choice questions essentially to get at the, the core content. What are the yeah. big walkaways? I needed to say to myself, what truly are the big walkaways? Um, and so I reduced the number of multiple choice questions down to 15 or 20. Yeah. Um, and I wanted them to be this is the stuff I want you to remember 20 years from now on Jeopardy. <laughs> um, these are the really big, important things. And then I wanted to look at the historical thinking skills. So what is it that I've been asking you to do cognitively that I want to see if you can do it on the test? And so I began to create, I called them 
uh, document problems, but they were really they're akin to kind of Sam's hats, the historical assessments of thinking. Right. Uh, they're along that line, but they were usually tied into a history lab that we had done in the unit. Mm-hmm. So I would bring forth a document or documents that they had played with in a history lab and then would have questions tied to it. And then for my essays, um, I always give gave kids choices in the essays. They'd get like four and they could pick one. Yeah. Well, I always made sure now that one of the essay choices was tied to the history lab and they could bring their notes that they had taken on each of the documents and use those notes as they wrestled with that essay question. The kids, of course, thought those questions were going to be easier because they could use their notes. They quickly found out that they weren't. But what I found was is that they were taking these really good notes on the documents so they could participate in the discussions and the arguments. But then they, were, they weren't worth anything. But now there was a secondary reward for taking good notes on those documents because if they chose that document question as, as their essay choice, they could go back and look at their notes. And it reinforced the need to take and pay good attention. Um, so I, I would incorporate an essay choice that was tied around the document work. And um, it made a difference because it rewarded them for thinking harder in class when they when they were doing those things. And I think it gave me a more complete read as to what they were walking away from in my class besides just content. Um, so yeah, that was a big change for me. Cool. I have one more question, and this is just about assessment, uh, assessing the investigations. So I know you wrote about that in, in your book. Do you mind talking us to us a little bit about how you assess those? Specifically, how students know like how they're doing on this particular skill throughout the year. Yeah, um, and that's actually where the the my district's movement towards formative assessment and the history labs and my desire to um, revisit my assessment practices kind of came together. And so, what I started to utilize were quick writes, um, so non formal writing. I used to tell the kids that. You know, you have five to seven minutes to answer this question, and literally your brain is just going to vomit through your pen onto the paper. I just want you to unpack your thoughts. And so, um, halfway through a history lab, which in the last school that I taught in, we had 45 minute classes, so that was you know close to the end of that period. But halfway through a history lab, I would have the kids stop, drop, and do a quick write, and it would be responding to something like the two documents that most contradict one another or the document whose sourcing information created the most issues, and they would have to respond to it, and I could get real quick insight to, are they sourcing the document? Are they connecting the author's background to what he or she has to say? Are they connecting it to the broader problem? And then I could, I had different prompts for first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, um, so that I could see growth in those historical thinking skills. And that was really helpful for me. And I think it was helpful for them because they realized that when I was teaching them to source or corroborate documents, it wasn't just because that's what I felt like doing that day. That was how we did things over the course of the year and that they had to get good at it. And then I could also take those quick writes and make them a more formalized piece as a target of summative assessment if I wanted to. And then there was other ways that you could summatively assess 
the history labs. What I was trying to get away from is the notion that a history lab kind of smells like a DBQ, but the DBQ's purpose is to prepare kids to write. Mm-hmm. Generally a five paragraph essay. And I have no problem with that. I want my kids to write, but if I did a five paragraph essay at the end of every history lab, I would never get outside. Yes. <laughs> um, so I needed things that were quick and easy that gave me insight to their thinking um, when I would assess those history labs. And so the quick writes were one way um, and other, other kind of short assessments. In some instances, as kids got more confident, they would um, finish it by simply ranking their sources as to the ones that were most influential in supporting their answer to the historical question to the ones that they found the least influential. Uh-huh. And then they would just have to explain, you know, how these three that you picked work together to support it or how the one that you discarded or didn't use, why you decided it wasn't um, helpful in supporting Very your um, Yeah, yeah. And what I found was is that the content was still there, you know, just because I wasn't given a quiz on, you know, list out the the four effects of whatever, they were still they were still versed in the content because that's what they were arguing about. Um, so I wasn't losing content. I wasn't jettisoning content just to focus on skills. You were able to, to strike that balance. That took me a while to get there. I mean. You're not going to get there right out the gate. <laughs> It'll take some time. <laughs> it does. <laughs> time, failure, and, well, getting back up there. It does. And unfortunately, too many people that are coming into the profession are in and out in five years. And they're not even around enough to realize what they don't know. <laughs> Bruce, I appreciate you chatting with us. And I, yeah, and I appreciate your book. It is absolutely fantastic. Um, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate you guys uh, picking it and reading it. Um, you know, it really makes me feel good that, that teachers are still reading it. Thank you. That was a really fascinating episode. I learned a couple things. Uh, the first thing was that you don't really need me, which makes me a little sad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, second, I missed you. The second thing was that I really liked the way he talked about how his teaching shifted and how he was able to like make his assessments fit, you yeah. know, like his, his whole his whole approach. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. <laughs> Again, I can't recommend this book any higher. Why won't you tell us the answer? I think teachers should read it and discuss it with their colleagues because it is definitely well worth the discussion. Well, even though I wasn't there, it was great to have Bruce on the podcast today. And we definitely hope to continue this discussion online and in other spaces. Yeah. And at the Vision of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed, or you can hit us up on the Facebook. And if you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be. And if you have a confession to make, you're hiding anything from me, you can leave that with your five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and we will read it on the air as long as it's nice. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off. <laughs>